I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Sherry Okeke, and this is The Doc Project. AC Rowe is away this week. Since the COVID-19 pandemic started, it's been a challenge for so many of us to stay connected with friends and family. And yet, at the same time, some people are making new connections online. Today, we have a story that I've produced and been following for months. It's about a group that started gathering regularly on Zoom last fall. They were strangers at first, but what they're doing online has led them to share things with each other that they'd never admitted to their closest friends and family, or even to themselves. This group is part of WIBCA. WIBCA stands for the West Island Black Community Association in Montreal. And getting to know WIBCA means getting to know Kemba. My name is Kemba Mitchell, and I am the chairperson of the West Island Black Community Association. People are always reaching out to Kemba for help, and she's ready with information about WIBCA's legal clinics, tutoring services, scholarships, technology courses for seniors. She actually had to cut one of our interviews short to go drive a senior to an appointment. We're really proud of the work that we do. It is not easy, but it is definitely worth it. Kemba's been named one of Montreal's laureates for Black History Month for all this volunteer work that she does in the community. She also has a full-time job. So Kemba is often described as tireless. But she does actually get tired. Because on top of everything she does to help everyone around her, Kemba also faces her own struggles. I just get so frustrated when there's something that's happened. To me, it's blatantly obvious. And that's through the lens of a Black person. But there's just this denial or, well, it can't be that bad. And come on, we've come a long way. And there's no racism here. And everyone has the same opportunities. And they just don't get it. And that affects who she feels comfortable around. I have my moments where I don't know how I feel about white people. A lot of times I keep them at bay because the trust level isn't there. I don't believe they have my best interests at heart. And that is because I'm a product of my experience. It may be uncomfortable hearing what Kemba has to say, but stay with me. Everyone in this story is stepping way out of their comfort zone. Kemba was born and raised in Montreal, but growing up here was tough, and many days are still tough. I knew that I was hated because of what I looked like since I was five years old and I had to go to school. Because once I left my home, I was at the mercy of everyone who was supposed to be teaching me, who were supposed to be my friends, my peers in school. My mother couldn't protect me when I was out there. So I just find that for me, it's like victimization over and over again. You know, how much more do we need to take on and yet you were you were open to having a white group become part of Wibka. Yes, I was open to having a white group become part of Wibka. Kemba has opened the door to a new program just for white people. A discussion group for white people within a black community association. Everyone in this group thought they were ready to get uncomfortable. And then something happened even I didn't expect. Something that shook everyone to the core. Wibka, the white discussion group, and me. We'll get to that. But first, I want you to get a sense of who else you would usually meet at Wibka. I'm Moshella Short. 
I am a black woman on a mission. I am an educator. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I am the mother of four children, one of whom is black and three of them are biracial. As a mom and as an educator, I am constantly trying to find ways to help my children deal with racism. Everything Michelle does is about helping children. At the West Island Black Community Association, she volunteers as a mentor to the young women running a program called Black Girls Gather. It's a book club for girls 12 to 18 years old. And when she's not volunteering, Michelle is working writing children's books focused on self-acceptance and also giving anti-racism workshops in schools. When I deliver my workshop, really there are two things that I really want to get across. One is that I want white teachers and school administrators to start to learn how to recognize racism in themselves and to help each other see that. Like, they have to be the ones to say to each other, hey, you know, that thing you did or that thing you said or that thing you refused to deal with, that's white privilege showing. That's racism. The second thing is to help them to understand how far it goes when these incidents are not dealt with, how much work it is on black family units to do the healing. In those workshops, Michelle explains that racist incidents happen on a daily basis. She opens up about her own experiences as a student and now as a mother of students. And she says after each workshop, she needs to decompress. She sits in her car for at least half an hour before moving on with her day. It's very personal, this work, and and that's why it's so draining. But I get real satisfaction from every teacher who sends me a message and says, hey, thank you. I'm going to start my journey towards self-reflection. So although it's very draining, it's also extremely rewarding because I remain hopeful. Kamba has a lot of time for Michelle. Michelle is a very warm and kind person. And you get that feeling from the first conversation you have with her. She's really caring. Like if I'm going through something, then Michelle is the one who calls. She'll say, hey, how are you doing? Just checking in and always at the right time. Yeah, she's she's a gem. And the feeling's mutual. I'm inspired by her and I'm in awe of her energy and her drive. We would end some of our meetings at like two in the morning and at six, there were messages that she had sent. She was really burning the candle at all ends because she felt like this is my role to play and I need to play it. It's as simple as that. Last May, Michelle decided to devote more time to volunteering with Kemba. When the George Floyd incident happened, I watched my kids go from being proud of the skin they were in because I worked really hard on helping them to recognize the value of who they were as they were. And I watched that starting to diminish, like them going, oh, these things are happening to people who look like me because of the skin they're in, because of their blackness. Like George Floyd died because he was black. And I thought about that and I watched how that had such a negative effect on them. And I thought, we got to start changing the language we use to talk to our children about racism. He didn't die because he was black. Blackness doesn't kill us. It's not a disease. It's not a cancer. He died because that person who he crossed paths with was racist. And that's why he died. So it was realizations like that that made me want to talk to more people. At the same time, more people were reaching out to the West Island Black Community Association for help. It was an intense time for Kemba as the organization's chairperson, but also on a personal level. I've never witnessed someone die with my eyes. I've never witnessed that. And although I don't personally know him, 
I didn't know George Floyd, but I do know him because I have black males in my family. I have black males in terms of my friends. So we may not have known George Floyd, but we know George Floyd because all of us have had someone, if not ourselves, being subjected to police brutality or police harassment. It's happened. So it was very real to me. And I knew that the same thing could easily happen anywhere. Here in Montreal, it happens. And so I, I would have to say that moment, I really felt, okay, we use our platform. This is the time to bring this issue and concern to the forefront. And I think that this was the onset of WIPCA being recognized as, I would say, an influencer in terms of highlighting injustices and being unapologetic about it. The week after George Floyd's death, Kemba received an email she never expected. Actually, I remember the day. It was, it was June 5th. We received this email from an individual. Never heard of this person. She was looking for a book club or a study group, something that she can educate herself um, about white privilege, about systemic racism, uh, about black history. She was looking for somewhere to go. And right away in my head, I'm like, is this a setup? Because this has never happened before. <laughs> a, a white individual contacting us saying they want to, you know, be part of inquiring about a book club to, to, for them to identify their own privilege. Wow. Okay. And she was very clear from the beginning that she's not looking to create additional work for our community. She's looking to see if there's something available. Wibka didn't have anything like that. Still, Kemba wanted to know more about the person behind this email. So I said, you know what? Thank you for contacting us. This is really brave of you, right? So I said, I'm going to call you. We can have a discussion. So my name is Rachel Savet, and I am a white woman from North Carolina. Um, I've never introduced myself as a white woman because it's been a whole new experience, even just realizing that we racialize everything other than ourselves. Somehow we're the norm. So that's been something that I've been learning lately. I uh, moved to Montreal about three and a half years ago. She spoke about being American and speaking about the fact that it just clicked to her after George Floyd. She acknowledged her white privilege. This was the first time that I had been seeing on the news that I started seeing these people who were being murdered as people who were being murdered, doing nothing, doing nothing wrong. Rachel was suddenly thinking back to other Black men she'd seen in news reports. And this was the first time that I saw them as just people going for a run in their neighborhood, that it started to make me fear for my white relatives that were going to go for a walk in a neighborhood. Because, you know, if it can happen to this guy, why can't it happen to my relatives. And of course it's not going to happen to my relatives because they're not black. It was a moment of finally, for the first time, seeing this for the real tragedy, beyond tragedy, the crime, the horror that it is. You know, why is this happening only to a certain group of people she couldn't really tap into it per se, but she acknowledged that she had an advantage in, within her skin. Hearing that acknowledgement, that was new for Kemba. Usually it's a struggle to get people to understand privilege. 
and Kemba has tried to explain it. One example she uses is the conversations many Black parents have with their children. You know, that infamous phrase, work 10 times harder, because we do. And that's the message that myself as a mother have had to express to my kids. I would really hope that one day that is not the message you have to give to your child, let's say, going into kindergarten. That you can simply say, have a great first day and not have in the back of your head that they may be approached and made fun of because of their skin, because of their hair, because of their eyes, that they will just go into school and be a child. But until that time, this is the conversation that many of us have to have with our children. And so when I tell white people that this, some of the things that we speak to our children about, they are completely confused. They don't get it. And I said, well, that is an example of your white privilege. But Kemba says the conversation with Rachel was different. And that conversation was very emotional because I was thanking her for contacting us. And she was thanking me for allowing her the opportunity to even speak about it. It's so, it's like, how, how, how have I lived 26 years and I never made it personal? And I will never know what it's like to live in that kind of fear, but just to humanize it for the first time. That was the change for me. That was after George Floyd. I spoke about how it made me feel as a black woman, as a black mother, And then I started to think about when I heard him ask for his mother, who was no longer alive. And so I kept on thinking about that and I became very emotional. And she was kind of like, she doesn't know me from anywhere, right? And she's the same age as my daughter. And she was comforting me, but not in the way to say, you know, it's got to get better. I, I understand because she could not understand. And I have to say that on a personal note, I don't surround myself with like, I don't have white friends. I I have white acquaintances and I work with white people, but I don't have really white people in my close circle. And never mind being vulnerable. That doesn't happen, right? So here's this young woman who I have no idea who she is. First time I'm on the phone with her and I'm just become vulnerable. I remember tearing up because at that moment you feel like the world hates you because of your skin being black. And then you have this young white female that really is, you know, acknowledging the privilege and the unearned privilege and willing to do something about that. So, yeah, I very impressed. What Rachel wanted to do about that was set up a discussion group for people like her who are trying to figure out how to do better. It was this real feeling of like, I don't want this to be one of those things that you are so deeply affected by. And then two months later, you're like, oh, that was in 2020 and you haven't done anything and you haven't, you know, read all those books that you liked on Instagram. I really didn't want to find myself having done nothing because I feel like I had done enough of nothing. (laughs) Initially, Rachel was thinking it would be a book club. Then she expanded that idea to include podcasts and documentaries that would also spark discussion. It's the Confronting Racism Discussion Group through Wibka. It's a mouthful, but I didn't want it to be, you know, the anti-racism discussion group. Like, it's more of a confronting it in ourselves as a first step, and then as a second step, confronting it in our communities, and then the bigger, wider world. 
if we if we ever get there. <laughs> you could tell she was ready to put in the work. When Kemba talks about Rachel being ready to put in the work, this is key. Rachel intentionally chose to access books, podcasts, and documentaries as sources of information for the group instead of expecting someone from the Black community to explain racism and privilege. Too often, Black people are expected to do all the explaining, on top of facing racism themselves. Rachel was well aware the information is already out there and easily accessible. That made a difference for Kemba. Still, there was a challenge here for Rachel. She was concerned about white people learning in a bubble, with no insight from Black people they could actually speak to and get feedback from. Kemba figured Wibka could help. She really wanted to be able to use the opportunity to teach white people, but not to burden Black people. So I felt she could have the responsibility of hosting the the program, but it would be best to be overseen by a person of color. I instantly thought about Michelle. She says, there's this person in the community, in the white community who has reached out to us. She's going to take the lead on this, but I need you to kind of like feel it out. I was skeptical at first. I started thinking about who is this person? Rachel's American, but has been firmly planted in Quebec for three and a half years now. She taught herself French, so she's bilingual, and her boyfriend is Québécois. She says her experiences on both sides of the border have led to this moment. When I first came to Quebec, it was nothing like what I thought it was going to be because my whole experience as an American in Canada, people think that it's you know, this perfect land of snow and no racism and the politics are fine and there's no problems up there. And it's just kind of like this fairy tale place. And when I came here, it's so similar, like it's not that different. And in terms of racism, I find it's exactly the same. If anything, this past year has been a real eye opener to the insidiousness of the idea that Canada is like post-racist, that it's easy to point to Americans and say like, oh, that's a problem. Like racism is a problem in America. It's not a problem here. Rachel lives just east of downtown Montreal. And these days she's been seeing her neighborhood differently. I take a walk every morning and (laughs) I realized the other day, I only know one black guy who walks his daughter to the preschool. And I know that's not the demographic breakdown. Like, that's just this neighborhood. Like, what attracted me to this neighborhood out of all of the variety of jobs that I've worked in Montreal, none of my bosses have ever been people of color. Moshella says she and Rachel clicked right away. I think it was the fact that she understood that even though she had a desire to change, she knew that that didn't make her immune from acts of racism. Um, She knew that. And for me, (laughs) hallelujah, right? It was like, this is what you want to hear. You want them not, not just to think that, okay, just because I recognize that I have been racist, just because I recognize that I sit in a in a seat of privilege in the skin that I'm in doesn't mean that all is well now. Those for me were the real um, things that sealed the deal. Okay, let's go. Now we can do real work. Coming up, now that Rachel has approval to set up this confronting racism discussion group, how's it actually going to work? Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. 
Subscribe now. One decision Michelle and Rachel made together about this confronting racism discussion group is that only white people can attend the meetings. Here's Rachel. It needs to be a place where people feel like they can really say um, a lot of the experiences they've had as white people. And a lot of the time, people won't be frank and honest about that kind of stuff if they feel like it's going to offend someone. But Rachel didn't want this discussion group to be reflecting and learning in a bubble. So they've also set up what they call the debriefing group. It's three black women, Michelle and two other Wibka volunteers, who are not at the meetings, but who are reading the same books, listening to the same podcasts, and watching the same documentaries. During the discussion meetings, Michelle is on standby in case any questions come up for her. The debriefing group will also make suggestions to the discussion group. Michelle says that connection is key to making real change. I have had experience in the past where I'm discussing something, where change needs to happen with someone who's supposed to be a white ally. And I've spent too much of that time trying to console them because they feel sympathy for my experience. And that brings them to tears. Michelle says white people crying for her pain is not comforting and not helpful. It actually slows down her work. Her anti-racism workshops with teachers sometimes get derailed by someone crying tears of guilt. Then the focus shifts to that person's feelings instead of learning how to fight racism in the classroom and on the playground. Michelle does recognize that learning about all of this for the first time can be overwhelming and emotional. But she wishes white people would confide in each other and not cry to black people about black people's pain. I think our role is to show the discussion group how that can be counterproductive, right? So I feel like they need to be taught on how to be good allies. About 12 people signed up to take part, but only two feel comfortable enough to talk about it publicly. I'm Carol Horn, and I'm 76 years old. I'm the oldest person in our discussion group. I was an educator until I was 70 in communities across Canada, First Nations and Inuit. My name is Sophie Tremblay. I'm a 22-year-old student. I study in uh, human resources, and I work also in human resources as an intern. I felt like I had a real understanding of racism until George Floyd. With uh, the killing of George Floyd and uh, the movement that followed after, I was looking for um, a way to help and I heard about the, uh, the discussion group. Since I work in HR, I didn't want to recreate um, the problems of our society. We began to also see people standing in the streets in Montreal in Canada saying Black Lives Matter. And then when we saw police brutality in our own streets, you know, one time where a young man was pulled right out of his car by his hair, um, those kind of things are just gut-wrenching. They really are. And so then that was a waking up for me. We have very good conversation. I'm, I'm actually excited to get to meet them in person uh, once we can. One of my favorite one observations was when someone in the group mentioned that they just re- revisited Blindside, the movie with Sandra Bullock, in their mind and said, I love that movie. And I could relate to that. I love that movie. And then he said, but now I look at it. Yeah, it was totally racist. It was the poor big black boy had to have a little white boy help him figure out things. So even though he was a big black athlete, he wasn't a smart person. So it was still racist in such extremes. And the two of us both agreed that this was a whole new view of the world that was coming from this experience together. But at the same time, it's very, um, it's a difficult subject to talk about. Long term, the group wants to focus on writers who are people of color. But Rachel thought it would be best to start off with a white author. So their first assignment was to read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. 
It was published in 2018, soon became a New York Times bestselling book, and demand for it jumped after George Floyd was killed. The thing that stands out to anyone who reads it right away is you don't have a choice. If you are white, you are already a racist. You have grown up in a setting that gives you the sense that you have privilege. And I find that very, very interesting because you have to look at yourself and say, I do have, and I need to investigate more about how I feel about other people in everything I do and say. The conversations can get uncomfortable. Some people brought up that when they were talking about racism to people from Quebec, um, as a defense, the people would usually bring up that since we're Francophones and historically um, oppressed in a way by the British, that it was an excuse that we couldn't be racist because we were oppressed. And so my first instinct was, oh, are they are they like attacking me? But quickly, quickly, it was just like the first feeling. And then I was like, no, 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 <laughs> that, that's not what's happening here. It's not because um, you're oppressed by one group that you can't oppress other groups. So we, we discussed about that. Sophie says reading and discussing the book White Fragility did bring something up for her personally. I had a lot of um, cringe moments, <laughs> as I like to call it. She remembers giving advice to a friend who was moving to Montreal and looking for an apartment. Sophie was telling this friend about a neighborhood with great restaurants. And then I finished off saying, but there's a lot of uh, immigrants. And then that person responded to me saying, well, I don't care about that. And then while rereading the book, I was like, why, why did I even say that? Yeah, and then I felt uh, ashamed of what I said. Um, but then in the book, they tell you about how uh, we grew up in a society and we we learn all these implicit biases and um, they will come out. The important is to learn from them. Remember, Michelle is not at the discussion group's meetings, but she's reading that same book, White Fragility, and she too is learning some uncomfortable things about herself and how she talks about racism to white people. And I've learned that as Blacks, we tend to think that they're fragile and we tend to avoid, you know, those uncomfortable moments, whether it's a colleague or a friend who's white, we kind of tiptoe around them. And I felt like I was guilty of that. And for me, with my dealings with Rachel, I've discovered um, that I had that tendency to think that, oh, let me cover this with a little bit of honey to, to take the medicine, that kind of thing. And I've discovered that she can take it. I don't need to sugarcoat anything. And for me, that's big. At this point, the discussion group had held three meetings. It's December and time for the West Island Black Community Association's annual general meeting, which is happening on Zoom and is open to the public. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the West Island Black Community's first virtual AGM. Kemba was excited for the wider community to hear about Wibka's new programs, including the Confronting Racism Discussion Group. We've had over 100 slides. We worked so hard in pulling this together. We, this was our moment, right? Rachel was also excited to be there. It was great to be able to see all of these faces that I knew. And so sitting there, I, I was really excited too as to where you know what they had to say and and having the community hear that and feel that so when it started everything was going really good and when the first screen was shared and i saw an image i really thought my mind was playing tricks on me like what is going this this can't be that's when things started going wrong. Someone on the presentation drew a picture of a man's penis. And I right away messaged our vice chair who was managing the Zoom. I said, what is that? She had immediately taken it down. Our vice chairperson, Shayna, was stating that, you know, whoever is doing this, we are kicking you out. 
this is not right. So we were giving them warning, right? But I never thought that, you know, three minutes down the line, we would have been subjected to madness. You're about to hear a recording of the madness Kemba is talking about. It's disturbing and includes strong language. I have Wibka's permission to play it, though. They think it's important for people to hear. So it is obvious that someone, there's particular people that are using this. Hey, Shut the fuck up. Pink lives matter. Pink lives matter. Then comes the racial slurs. Black and twerking. If you think Black Lives Matter, you're a fucking joke. Like, those black people need a... There was this person in a ski mask who was yelling at what I have come to feel is, like, my community. And, like, I took out my headphones and automatically, like, you know, made my boyfriend come and watch it because I almost couldn't believe that it was happening. And it just kept going. At this point, this is when we shut no the longer... fuck up. No shut the hell up. Shut up. Pink Stop muting me, dumbass. I'm just gonna. Un- you know, I could hear multiple voices, and it was going for like a whole like it felt like forever, but I feel like it was probably honestly like a whole minute and a half, and then the moderator was able to mute everyone, and then they went on the chat the chat function where you can write to the whole group and there was just a copy and paste of the n-word over and over and over and over and over again i i was in shock because i never thought that we would be attacked in that manner because for us we're a humble black community organization having an annual general meeting who who really outside of us is going to care about that and care enough to come in in a group and and literally destroy everything we work so hard to put together and that's how it felt it was an attack it was a racial attack at some points we're gonna have to just make a call to say we have to reschedule there's there's just, uh, I'm personally traumatized right now. I hear you. I, I can't. And I was thinking about, you know, the elders in the community that came on the Zoom and some of them Zoom was very new to them. And I thought about them and how they were probably subjected to face-to-face, you know, racial slurs, maybe when they were younger. And I thought about how this can trigger a very negative um, emotion. For me personally, it did trigger, you know, when I was younger in high school, going to a regional high school, being the only black female in over 2,500 students and being called the N-word every other day. But someone would yell it, but I would never see who did it. And I was just a very angry person for two years I went back to that moment and I I went into the protection mode. So right away, I was like, you know what? We stop. Because I felt that we, by allowing this to continue, we are allowing the assault to continue. And I just, I, I still go back to that moment thinking, how do you just hate so much that you go out of your way, out of your way to make people feel like they're not wanted and they're, uh, they're, they're not worthy. How, how does hate even get at you like that? Michelle was shaken too. When I saw that it was young people doing this, my heart was broken in a in a different way because you know where the work i'm doing in particular is is with young people and i feel like they have access to so much information and when it's when they're delivering this sort of um pain on the black community within our home the fact that it happened within a space that was supposed to be safe for us the fact that that 
blow was coming from young people made it that much harder. Carol from the Confronting Racism Discussion Group was there too and couldn't believe her eyes. I started to cry. I am now. And I turned to my husband and I said, I can't believe that this is happening, that this is here, that this happens every day to other people. And that was it. That's where I was. I was just so hurt for others and shocked for myself. And we both sat here, the two of us, stunned. It was a Friday night, and despite the trauma it brought back for Kemba, she went into action. In her role as chairperson of WIBCA, Kemba spent the rest of that weekend filing a police report and doing news interview after news interview with local media, trying to raise awareness and make it harder for this to happen again. All the while hoping that members of her new program, the Confronting Racism Discussion Group, those who were there would learn something from what they witnessed. It's like when you go on a school outing, right? So you can learn and read a book, but then now's your chance to go to the museum and be in that moment. This to me, it's like, it was like an excursion almost for these individuals because now it's like, okay, now here's the example. And now how do you feel? And they, from their experience being there, can teach through the lens of a white person, teach their peers about what they witnessed and were a part of. It was really uh, eye-opening for myself and the other people who were there because I had never felt that feeling of invasion like that. Like Kemba, Michelle also went into action. I called Rachel first. I knew she was there, and I knew that that was going to have a real big impact on her. And I wanted to reach out and I wanted to support her. All of a sudden then my phone was ringing and it was Moshella and, you know, she was there to check on me. (laughs) And like, I was like, what do you mean? Like, how are you? Like, are you okay? How is this? What is this like? Like, what are, what are, how are you? I wanted to support her. Yeah, that's really hard to say out loud. Um, It's really um, not an easy thing to to admit to. But I think it's that black woman thing where we have to be strong all the time, right? I thought I was a rock. I was going to reach out to her and I was going to... Instantly, I was thinking, who needs support now? I need to call. And I wasn't admitting to myself that I needed support, <laughs> that I that this was this was huge impact on how I felt about myself. I I remember saying to my husband and to someone else, I had when that first image went up, this what I could only describe as a sense of a primal fear for my being, for my community, for the work we were doing, trying to do. We were being attacked, you know? And, but (laughs) what did I want to do? I wanted to go and help someone else. And it, it was a lesson in humility for me when I recognized what I was doing. I was made aware of how, as members of the Black community, we feed into that white fragility And I think that that's what was happening. Once I I broke down with Rachel, she allowed me to just spew it all out. Things that I didn't even know I was feeling. The fact that she called me um, meant a lot to me and to be able to just listen to her and hear her processing things. She didn't do what normally happens in a situation with this because she was there. And she, in her own way, was hurt by what was happening. It looked different for her, but it impacted how she felt as well. Um, But she didn't see the need to, to bring that into the conversation. She gave me exactly what I needed from 
a white ally in that moment. She listened. She heard me out. And that's why I say what that incident aimed to do kind of backfired. <laughs> I think that we've grown in strength as a result of it. If there were as any doubt about the fact that racism is alive and well in Quebec um, and that it is not just an American issue, that was really a moment of clarity that we need to be really vigilant about our work and educating ourselves so that we can then go and help in this fight in a more like active way. Totally. Because I think up until then, it was still something not quite right here, right in my face. So our discussions afterwards were like, oh, this is what people face. This is what children face. Now I know how it feels. It was really like, okay, we can talk about it. We can think about it. But I actually felt it. I want to reach out to the people that I know personally and make sure that they know that we're standing here with them and we're here to support you. That support is appreciated, but also stirs up some mixed feelings. What Kemba and so many Black people want to see is concrete change. So I asked the discussion group, what changes are you making? Carol's involved in a nonprofit organization and she's convinced the team to make space for a Black person to become a board member. Sophie, who's studying human resources, tells me she's now starting conversations about race with the people of color in her life and hearing from them how hard it is to get a job if your name doesn't sound white. The group is learning, and Rachel says she knows she still has a lot more to learn. I was convinced and I was told that it's the problem of you know, the people of color. Like, that's not our problem because we're white, you know? It's not for us to deal with. They're the ones that's suffering from it, so they're the ones that's going to do something about it. Um, I think that was very much like an attitude that was unconsciously the norm for me. And then realizing, no, it's the people who are oppressing. It's the people who are, that have the privilege to say, like, this is wrong. We need to be doing something. Um, and I think that was a huge change for me, realizing that it's up to white people to be doing something. I really appreciate her take on it and her transparency. I really do feel that she does give that just that sense of some sense of hope. So that prevents me personally from having such negative feelings towards white people. I think the connection that Rachel and I share is really special. It's definitely not where I saw it going, but it's definitely where it is right now. Like we have like a real love for each other and for this work that we're doing. And so I think that that lends itself really well to where we can go with this because now I feel like she's, she's part of my family now. To have Moshella there and to have the debriefing group there, it's like, it grounds that connection that this isn't about, you know, some separate community. This is our community. And she's standing in front of you and saying, like, like this is how this has affected me. This is how this is affecting my children. And I think that it hits different than than reading a book. And reading a book, like, is important because it can help educate you but knowing living breathing human beings right in front of you is what makes it like an everyday thing and an everyday fight that's what Kemba wants more people to see this is something you need to work on every day and it's not just for yourself but for your family for your friends I mean Anti-black racism 
this is this means it's not just I'm a good person. I know this is wrong and stay in your bubble. This means that when your, you know, 80 year old mother or father says something that is completely racist, that you feel confident enough in yourself to check them and say, no, actually, that is not right. When you're in um, your place of employment and your colleague or your director says something, makes a joke, and you actually approach them and say, that is uncalled for, that is not acceptable. When you step up and call things out, that is what's gonna make the difference. Kemba Mitchell. That documentary was produced by me, Sherry Okeke, with Allison Cook and Veronica Simmons. Of course, this story isn't over. The investigation into that racist attack on Wibka's annual general meeting is ongoing. And right now, Kemba's actually helping another Black organization in Montreal that just experienced a similar online attack. The Confronting Racism Discussion Group is still holding meetings. This month, they're watching a documentary, 13th, by director Ava DuVernay. The Doc Project is produced by A.C. Rowe, Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, Alison Cook, Veronica Simmons, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. All of us are going to miss our colleague Julia Poggle. She's having a baby and will be off on mat leave for a year. Congratulations, Julia. We're wishing you all the best. The rest of us will be right back here next week, including AC Rowe in the host chair. I'm Sherry OKK. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.